Welcome to Freedom Matters Today. This is Michael J. Sutton and it is December the 25th, 2023. So, Happy Christmas. Today's episode is Who Holds the Universe Together? Freedom Matters Today looks at freedom from a Christian perspective. We look at freedom from fascism and tyranny, freedom from fear and despair, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from sin and death, freedom from past and prejudice, and freedom from war and conflict. This series is a series about the identity of Jesus, or rather, God's pronouns. Freedom Matters today looks at freedom, because freedom comes from God, and Jesus brought freedom to us. The Bible says that if the Son shall set you free, then you shall be free indeed. You shall be truly free, for the message of God is that of freedom. So what is freedom from past and prejudice? Well, freedom from the past are things that define us and bind us, which prevent us from knowing God and ourselves. For Jesus, the past both defined and bound him in life and death. Freedom from prejudice is the way we see ourselves and others based on the things that divide us. For Jesus, prejudice was a stumbling block for those close to him, but it was all nonsense to those who were not. It is Jesus, the Son of God, the message of God, who enables us to see our past and confront our prejudice so we might live in complete freedom. This series examines a few verses in the remarkable letter to the Hebrews several verses which speak about the identity of Jesus. So far we have seen that the Son of God is the message of God, the final word of God to those whose ancestors heard God speak in many and various ways through the prophets. We have also discovered that this Son, Jesus of Nazareth, is both the heir to all things and the one through whom God created the world. Jesus is also the radiance of God, both in his current position and in his earthly life as Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus, in other words, existed before he was. The Son was before he came into being on earth. Jesus is the exact representation of God and of the same essence, being and substance. The letter we've been examining is that of Hebrews. It's a most remarkable letter. It is a letter to Jewish people. And these Jewish people in the first century were thinking about whether they should follow Jesus or whether they should return to the temple, the temple in Jerusalem, whether they should return to the law of Moses, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, and find forgiveness and hope in the teachings of Moses. This was the question facing many Jewish people in the first century. The author to the, of the letter to the Hebrews challenges them, exhorts them and teaches them that the path forward for all people, whether Jewish people or non-Jewish people, is to follow 
Jesus. It is not to go back to the temple or the Ten Commandments or the ceremonial laws and seek forgiveness through the temple, through the sacrificial system, because the sacrifice was made, the atonement was made by the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. The author to the letter of the Hebrews is unequivocal unequivocal in his thinking and argument that there is only one way for the Jewish followers of Jesus to live and that is to elevate their understanding of the identity of Jesus. And it is the same for us today. We need to elevate in our minds and in our hearts the identity of Jesus. We need to strip away our cultural misunderstandings. We need to take down our false assumptions and we need to rid ourselves of our incorrect expectations of Jesus. And we need to see him clearly. We need to see his identity, who he is. We need to elevate our understanding of the identity of Jesus. So many people on this Christmas day as they sing the songs, as they go to church or they gather with their families, have absolutely no idea who God is. And they have absolutely no idea who Jesus is. They might sit in church every week their entire lives and may never meet Jesus Christ. They may sit in the church every week for their entire lives and never know God. And in many places, their Bible remains closed. It is not as is falsely claimed today by many American Christians that the Jews are God's chosen people and that Jews have Moses and are accepted by God and Christians have Jesus and are accepted by God. This is the consequence of this bizarre way of thinking. The idiocy of it all is that the Jewish people have never ceased to be a nation. And the assumption behind this bizarre version of Christian theology is that suddenly after the war, the state of Israel was formed, starting the process of the final steps towards the last days. And Christians, therefore, many of them in America, are unwilling to engage with the nightmare of Gaza, of the continuing struggle of Palestinian people and Arab people within that deeply troubled and problematic region, simply because of some twisted versions of the New Testament that they have concocted, some strange formula of verses and ideas they've squashed together. And so for some reason, they are unwilling to do what Jesus would do. They are reluctant to embrace a life that Jesus would embrace, and they are adamant that they must remain silent in the face of such terrible criminality. Jesus came to help the poor, the vulnerable, and the weak, the fatherless and the widow. Jesus came to stand for justice, for righteousness and goodness. And Jesus was respected because he was a man who, for whom, uh, he, for whom, for everyone. He came for everyone. And Jesus was a man who had no favorites. He was friends to all. 
to Samaritans, to Jews, to Romans, to Greeks. He was one who embraced all and loved all. And he was the one who said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. He is the one who said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And yet Christians today, many of them, are warmongers. How can you war and fight against those made in the image of God? How can you justify war, such as the war that is unfolding and has been unfolding in the Middle East for weeks? Terrible things were done, but the ends do not justify the means. It is God who takes revenge. I will repay, says the Lord, not us. If we go down the path of revenge, we are no better than they who commit murder and crimes. That's why we have the law and the courts to hold those guilty accountable, but also to save ourselves, because if we seek revenge, we are no better than they who have committed the crimes. The law is there because God has instituted it for the uh, execution of righteousness. But war is never the answer. Conflict is never the answer. Jesus said, love your enemies and do good to those who persecute you. And St. Paul said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and the dark forces of evil in this world. In other words, our struggle is ultimately against ourself, ourselves and our struggles against Diabolos, the devil who seeks to wreak havoc in the world and destroy those who have faith. But our struggle is not against others made in the image of God. The idiocy of all of this strange way of thinking that is so popular in American Christianity is that the Jewish people somehow became a nation after the war and this jump starts the last days. But the Jewish people, like many other peoples, ancient peoples, have never ceased to be a nation. Even when they were cast out of the promised land, even when they went into exile, even when they were cast out under Claudius, even when they were cast out in the Middle Ages and wandered around the world, they never ceased to be a nation. Because the word nation in Greek is not a nation state, but ethnos, which is where we get our word ethnicity. The Jewish people have been all around the world for 2,000 years at least. Even before the time of Jesus, there was a Jew Jewish diaspora around the world. Paul was living in Damascus, not in Jerusalem. There were Jews in all the major capitals of the world even before the time of Christ. But they maintained their identity, their faith and their culture. It was intact and preserved. The creation of the state of Israel is not the beginning of the nation of Israel, for they always were a nation, even during their many exiles from the land of Palestine. The author of the letter to the Hebrews would say to these American Christians who are using their strange theology to justify their silence regarding the intentional genocide of the people of Gaza. They are doing the opposite of what Jesus would do. They are doing the opposite of what God does, which is to stand for justice and for mercy. The author of the letter to the Hebrews would say to these American Christians, 
My friends, you do not understand the person, the identity, the words, and the actions of Jesus. He wrote, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. To date, we have said some remarkable things about the identity of Jesus. These clues as to his identity throw us, challenge us, and perplex us, because we exist on the margins of this thinking. We have been shaped by a Western view of Jesus, which usually exists in mantras and slogans, but rarely plumbs any depths when it comes to anything substantial. This is in keeping with the spirit of our age. We live in a superficial world. We live in a world that skims the surface like a rock as you cast it across the waters. We live in a world paper thin, papering over reality, papering over the substance. We prattle off our slogans as if we expect others to understand them. But we have little understanding ourselves. And yet we want others to imbibe them, accept them, and believe them when we do not believe them ourselves. This is the problem of faith today in Australia, in America, Canada, Europe, New Zealand, and other places. It is not really a question of faithlessness, because many people wish to be faithful, and many are earnest in this personal expectation. But what they lack in understanding, they make up for in zealotry, which sadly means that even fewer people will ever understand. Most people who go to church on Sunday have no idea who God is, have not the slightest idea who Jesus is, and have so misunderstood the spirit that it is an embarrassment. For most they have their agenda, which is to meet their friends, to be reminded of their simple beliefs, and to turn off their brain, absolve themselves of their responsibility, and listen to someone else who has probably, though not always, pinched his sermon from the internet. Most pastors, ministers and priests are far too busy to write their own material and often use the net to get their inspiration and the writings of others for their insight. But the text of the Bible stands uncomfortably resilient against our priorities. In other words, what we want to talk about is not what God wants to talk about. What drives us is not what drives God. What presses us forward is not what presses the Spirit to convict us. This profound chasm sits between us every day and we read, if we do read, the Bible with one eye on the clock, one eye on the newspaper or the headlines and only ever so slightly engage in what God is saying in his word. 
we are distracted. Christian bookstores are full of books that express the former and so few express the latter. Christians have their top three priorities and books are written to satisfy these needs or what they perceive are their needs. But they are not their needs and so few books today, podcasts, blogs and sermons take into account the mind of God or at least the mind of the writer of one of the many books in the Bible which we have inherited. I'm not talking about application. A good minister could apply the text to all the categories of people present on any given day. That's not the issue. What the issue is, is that of superficiality. The Bible for us is a book we rarely open, and when we open it, we just skim the surface. We are not interested in listening because we want to see the latest TV show. We're not interested in listening because we need so many we need to do so many things in our day. We're not interested in reading because we have other priorities we regard as more important. The things of God are pushed further and further away from our hearts and our minds. For example, when we stop praying, when we stop reading, when we stop talking to others about God and then other things take their place. So many gods competing with the God of the Bible. When we read that the Son sustains all things by his powerful word, we read it as if it is simply a jumble of words we need to get through so we can sing the song or listen to the sermon or go to the bathroom. This is how we approach the Bible. These are not simple words. They're not easy words and they're not uncontroversial words. These words will get you killed in many places around the world. These words will end friendships with many whom you know. These words will challenge your very faith so that you question all that you know. Who holds the universe together? Who holds the world together? Is it money? Is it power? Is it strength? Is it the United States? Is it Russia? Is it England? Is it Australia? If you're on the right of politics, well, it's the World Economic Forum and their grand conspiracies, or the Masons, or another group. And on the left, it's capitalism and the inherent dialectic within, the contest between the classes. Both groups have expunged God from their history, their theology, and their solutions. For them, it may be God, but it is certainly not Jesus. Jesus may be the Savior, but few hold to his divinity these days, and sadly, many Christians jump for joy when one or more Canadian or American person expresses even the slightest belief in God. Who cares if some prominent Canadian thinker decides that there's a God? It is really only the Anglo-Saxon who boasts in atheism these days. Most people in old Eastern Europe and China hold to the belief in God or the gods, or the ancestors. This is not that God exists. This is not the key question. But it is the identity of Jesus so proclaimed and talked about in the New Testament. It is that Jesus, the Son of God, sustains all things by his powerful word. This is the claim. This is the statement. This is the identity of Jesus. These are his pronouns that the Bible so forcefully and decisively declares to us today. It is not simply that the Son sustains the universe by his powerful word, but that one of the functions of the Son of God since his ascension 
is to hold the universe together by his powerful word. Jesus, the Son of God, the little baby in the manger, the little baby surrounded by the animals, his doting mother, and the host of angels sought by Herod, carried off to Egypt by his loving parents, including his stepfather Joseph, warned in a dream not to stay in Bethlehem, this little Jesus who soon became a man and reasoned with the elders of Jerusalem, who later was baptized by John by the river Jordan, gathered a small group of men and women around him, the men to inspire him, and the women to provide for their financial need. This Jesus who went around teaching and healing and loving, only to be crucified three years later and put in the tomb belonging to another, this Jesus rose from the dead and is now sustaining all of creation by his powerful word. The Son. Why is he called the Son? I believe it has to do with obedience and submission. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, says John. But it wasn't simply dwelling among us. It was a life of humility, of laying aside his divine power and privileges, of becoming one of us in every way, of being poor, without money, without friends, without success, and without privilege. Just as a son submits to his earthly father, the Son of God submitted to his heavenly father a time of submission before his eventual exaltation by God. Jesus became the Son by humbling himself and not elevating himself. And after his submission, God lifted him up and elevated him to the highest position. Jesus holds the universe together by his word. This is a most remarkable assertion. I believe that the author of the letter to the Hebrews has Genesis in mind when he is composing this letter, or at least this part. Two images have already been used to describe the functions of the ascended Son of God. The first is the image of God. The idea that Jesus is the perfect image of God and this is, I believe, an echo of the idea in Genesis that man was made in the image of God. The second word is that of the word, or the spoken word of God. In Genesis, God spoke, and the world was created. And in the same way, Jesus holds the universe together by his word. These ideas testify to the creativity of the Son in creation, and in the continual existence of all things. This is probably not the way most people think of Jesus. This is probably not the way most people think of God. They struggle with the idea of Jesus being more than a man. They struggle with the idea of Jesus being divine. And they struggle with the idea of Jesus with so much power. Many of them crave power. Many people in this world crave control over others. Many of people in this world see whom they think are powerful people. Those with the tanks and the missiles and the bombs. Those with the bank accounts. But they all die. And they all stand before Jesus the King. And must give an account of their life. And what they've done and what they've said. And what they've left undone. Yes, there is power in this world. 
there's human power, and much can be achieved by it, for good and for evil. And God holds us accountable for what we do and what we do not do. But this world's power, its true power, is in the Son of God. And people struggle with the idea that the little baby in the manger is the one who held the universe together. And people struggle with the idea that the one who was crucified on the cross, who died for sin, is the one who is all-powerful and all-loving and all-knowing, who knows our hearts, who knows everything we will ever do or say, and who has forgiven us all our sins from the first to the last sin of our life through his death on the cross. For Jesus came for a particular reason, which was to die for the sin of the world. He came with a particular mission to love the people of this world. And he came with a particular heart and identity, which, he, which is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Anointed of God, the Messiah, the Expected One of God, and the One whom the ancestors were anticipating from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, the prophets and the others, and David and Solomon, they were anticipating the day of the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. These ideas are the products of faith. These ideas are the result of a mind shaped by the Word of God, inspired by the Spirit of God. These are not words that will be readily accepted by anyone outside of faith. For them, it is chance. For them... It is chance and therefore despair. Or for others, it is the evil of others and therefore expectant fear. Or for others, it doesn't matter and therefore rampant hedonism. But for the Christian who believes, life is worth living because Jesus, the Son of God, holds the universe together. Remember, freedom matters today because you matter to God. Enjoy your Christmas. Talk to you next week.